Tonight, I'm going to speak about Lushan Hara. The translation of Lushan Hara, which I will use, is um, slander. In truth, this is a very important topic. <clears throat> How important this topic is, is generally not understood. <clears throat> but the information that I would like to present tonight is critical in many ways. It's critical for your own mazal, mazal, as you will see. <clears throat> And um, it's also critical in the sense of how you conduct your lives. This will become apparent to you as the shir continues. <clears throat> now, as I said, Lashon Hara is a very important topic. And unfortunately, it is something that we commit, or we transgress all the time. Now, the Torah says already, In fact, it's in Parshish Kedoshim, which we had last week. <clears throat> what does that translate as? And you will not go as a talebearer amongst your people. The Torah already forbids speaking Lashon Hara. So you may ask, well, if the Torah forbids it, what kind of information can I possibly inform you that you don't know already? <clears throat> That's a good question. Not only that, not only is that a good question because the Torah expressly forbids it, but the truth is that we have all been victims of Lashon Hara. All of us. We've all been on the receiving end of people that speak about us, speak against us, behind our backs. And I'm sure that all of us have suffered some form of embarrassment or harm as a result of this. In other words, we have clearly been all victims. Therefore, we identify very easily with the sin of Lashon Hara. And we understand it very well. It's very close to home, as they say. <clears throat> So therefore you may also wonder, what can I possibly say? Because we're very familiar with the sin of slander. Besides that, I'm sure all of you would agree, and it is safe to say, that Lashon Hara is one of the most devastating forces known to man. Think about it. How many reputations have been destroyed because of slander, Lashon Hara? How many friendships have been lost? How many families have been destroyed because of Lashon Hara? Marriages broken apart, businesses dissolved. And how many times have countries gone to war with each other because of slander? <clears throat> so I'm sure all of us are very familiar, either as victims or as the fact that we see this constantly happening in the media, this incredible destructive power of slander of Lashon Hara. So you may wonder, well, what can I say to you that you already don't know? So therefore, I will tell you what I wish to do tonight. This lecture is fundamentally an information-giving lecture. <clears throat> I wish to impart to you information. <clears throat> what type of information? If you speak Lashon Hara, what happens? That's all. What happens? Based on that information, you can then decide if you wish to speak Lashon Hara or not. It's a free country. It's a democracy. You do whatever you want. All I want to do is tell you, when you do it, what happens. And you will decide on your own. <clears throat> I know that sounds rather simple, but uh, I'm sure that when you finish, when I finish the shear, the lecture, um, you will, it'll be quite obvious which way to decide. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to start the shear with a story. It's the only story of the evening. I usually don't say stories, but it's a powerful story. It is a story that took place many years ago in the town of Raden. Now, the town of Raden was the place of the yeshiva of the Chofetz Chaim, 
was one of the greatest living sages at that time. If not, uh, and even if not, he was certainly probably one of the, what they call the God Hador, the greatest man in his generation. Man was an incredible tzaddik, but a tzaddik righteous man. In any case, so it's about the time of the Chofetz Chaim. It's in the city or the town of Raden. Actually, it's a village, if anybody was ever there. Um, and it was on Purim, and there was a bochor. There was a student in the yeshiva, and he was drunk. Because we know that it is a mitzvah, it's a commandment to get drunk on Purim. In any case, he was drunk. And I'm sure he fulfilled the mitzvah even more than you have to. So he was really drunk. In any case, he decides to visit his Rebbe, the Chofetz Chaim. Right? And he goes to the house of the Chofetz Chaim, who lived probably a very short distance from uh, the yeshiva. He goes over into the house, <clears throat> and there's a crowd of people. Because who wouldn't want to go to the Chofetz Chaim, the greatest tzaddik, righteous man in the generation? <clears throat> Everybody. I mean, whoever was in the probably location around that locale wants to visit the Chofetz Chaim and get a brocha or whatever. So he comes into the room, and there's a big crowd there, and he wait, makes his way right up to the Chofetz Chaim. <clears throat> and the Chofetz Chaim is sitting at this table, <clears throat> and he was a very old man, uh, he lived to the age of 95, some people even say the age of 100, which is really incredible and so on. But in any case, he's standing in front of the Chofetz Chaim, and he says the following. He says, Rebbe, I want you to guarantee me that I'm going to sit next to you in the future world, in Ilm Habo. This is what he says. That's a rather modest request. <laughs> However, <clears throat> this is what he says. Now the crowd overheard him. Remember, he was drunk. So he probably said it pretty loud. The crowd overheard him and they looked at this guy and they obviously were mortified. What? You want to sit next to <clears throat> the Chofetz Chaim in the future world in Ilm Habo? <clears throat> now let me tell you something. What does it mean to sit next to somebody in the future world? It's not like here where everybody's sitting next to each other and each one of you could be different than the other. No. When you sit next to somebody in the future world, you must be equal to his reward level because people who are at the same reward level have the same heichol or chamber. That means if you're sitting next to the Chofetz Chaim in Oilam Habo, you are equal to the reward level of the Chofetz Chaim. Well, obviously this changes a lot of things, right? <clears throat> so the crowd looks at him and uh, you know, they begin to push him away. But the Chofetz Chaim looks at him because he heard this comment and he sees that he's drunk. So he motions to the crowd to leave him alone. Listen, he's drunk. Leave him alone. It's okay. Hey, leave him alone. Fine. Time passes, and the Chofetz Chaim now gets up in order to go to begin to eat from his su'udo, which is his meal, because there is a mitzvah to eat, of course, from the su'udo of Purim. <clears throat> so he gets up, and the crowd makes a, an aisle. They, they split. <clears throat> and the Chofetz Chaim, who was a very old man by then, begins to walk slowly. All of a sudden... There is a student, the Bocha, standing right in front of the Chofetz Chaim. <clears throat> and the student says to the Chofetz Chaim, Rebbe, I refuse to let you pass <clears throat> unless you promise me that I will sit next to you in the future world. Incredible. Now, <clears throat> if you remember, I said sitting next to a person in the future world means to be equal to the reward level of the Chofetz Chaim. What is the reward level of the Chofetz Chaim? Well, imagine... He's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, sadiq, righteous men in that generation. How many mitzvahs did he do, right? How much Torah did he learn? He's the one who wrote the Mishnah Bura, which is probably the, one of the greatest 
halachic form ever written in terms of its acceptance among all Jews, period. Even among Sephardim, <clears throat> in, in most of the halachas, where it deviates, you'll go to the Kafachaim or whatever, and so on. But the Mishnah and so on. How many people was he Makarov? Did he bring closer to Judaism? <clears throat> now we're looking at a man of enormous stature. And this person wants to sit next to him. So the Chofetz Chaim looks at him. You know what he says? He says, okay. Okay. I will promise, I will promise you that you will sit next to me in the future world. On one condition. What's that condition? If you promise me that you will never speak or listen to Lush and horror, slander again, you will sit next to me in the future world. In Ulam Habo. Incredible. <clears throat> what does this mean? In fact, I'll tell you something. That statement by the Chovetz Chaim was so astounding that his students sobered up right away. They were shocked that the Chovetz Chaim actually said, okay. And therefore, he sobered up. <clears throat> now, let me tell you something. Do you know that an offer like that from a tzaddik of the caliber of the Chovetz Chaim maybe comes once in a thousand years? A man like that promises you? I want to tell you something. A promise of the Chovetz Chaim is more stable and more guaranteed than the U.S. economy. That's how great this man is. Yes. So can you imagine this kind of an offer? Once in a thousand years, you can get a tzaddik of that caliber to make a promise. <clears throat> well, what did the student say? The student said nothing. Apparently he felt that he could not meet up to the expectations of the Chovetz Chaim, never to speak or listen to Lush and Hora again. Right? Incredible. So he said nothing. Ah, so the Chovetz Chaim looked at him and said, Ah, here's a person that's standing at the gates of heaven and doesn't want to walk in. Move him aside. And they moved him aside. It's interesting. History does not record what this student thought of later on. He had literally given up an opportunity that comes across maybe once in a thousand years. Who knows the remorse that this person had later on. <clears throat> but the question is, was the Chofetz Chaim only giving this offer to this student? Or perhaps no. Is it possible that this offer is given to everybody that will take up that challenge of the Chofetz Chaim? And I will tell you something. The truth is that offer is given to anybody. And that reward to sit next to the Chovetz Chaim is given to anybody that will take up that challenge and not speak or listen and believe lush and horror slander for the rest of his life. The question is, what does that mean? Now, if we reflect, we have to understand something. The truth is that this story is a very difficult story story to understand. Why? <clears throat> because the Chovetz Chaim doesn't own the future world. <clears throat> he can't give something that he doesn't own. There's only one way to get into Oilam Habo, and that is you have to do mitzvahs. God owns Oilam Habo. The Rabbani Shil Oilam owns Oilam Habo, not the Chovetz Chaim. So how can the Chovetz Chaim guarantee anybody Oilam Habo, let alone guarantee him a seat next to him? And the answer is, because he didn't guarantee him Next to the Chavetz Chaim because of himself, he said, if you do not speak or listen and believe Lashon Hara, based on that, you will sit next to me. Fine. 
<clears throat> but there's another question that's very difficult to understand. Do you have any idea what the Chofetz Chaim really said? I will tell you. <clears throat> Imagine that this student at the end of his life, let's assume he earns 10 points of Olam Habo, the future world, out of 100, let's say. Fine. But what did the Chofetz Chaim say to him? That when you die, you will sit next to me. me. Which means that this student, even though he earned 10 points, after his life is over, is getting 90 points of Olam Habo because that's probably where the Chovetz Chaim is sitting. How is that possible? How could you work and do 10 points and be elevated to the 90th percentile based on the concepts of Shmir's Haloshim, guarding your tongue not to listen and believe Loshin Hora and speak Loshin Hora? <clears throat> that's the incredible thing of the Chovetz Chaim. Do you hear? That's the incredible mystery about what the Chovetz Chaim is saying. How do we understand this? Yet that is what he said. So the question that we must ask is, how is this possible? And this is what this shear is all about. This is what I wish to share with you and to tell you, <clears throat> how is this possible, this offer of the Chovetz Chaim? That if a person does not speak or listen and believe Lashonara, slander, he will sit next to the Chovetz Chaim in the future world. Fine. Now that we understand this, we have to agree and understand certain definitions of Lashon Hara. Or certain halachas, laws of Lashon Hara. What is the definition of Lashon Hara? I will tell you. The definition of Lashon Hara is as follows. Any communication that will harm a fellow Jew is Lashon Hara. That is its definition. Any slander that you say that will bring harm to a fellow Jew is the definition of Lashon Hara. Now, it doesn't make a difference how you say it. You can speak Lashon Hara. You can write Lashon Hara. You can use body language. If somebody comes over to you and says, Yaakov, what do you think about Yaakov? And you say, Yaakov, ah! Or you go like this. Whatever gesture you use to indicate displeasure at Yaakov, that's Lashon Hara. Because that other person has clearly understood from what you said, that you clearly do not hold from Yaakov. Uh, therefore, body language is also a way of communicating language. And so is Morse code. You can use semaphores. You can use smoke signals. Whatever you're into, it doesn't make a difference. Any form of communication that conveys the concept of slander and therefore harms a fellow Jew is Lashon Hara. Third idea. <clears throat> Lashon Hara is only Lashon Hara if it's true. That's right, which is a surprise to many people. In order to transgress the commandment of Lashon Hara, the information must be true. Yes, just because something is true doesn't give you the right to slander somebody else. In fact, truth is what makes it Lashon Hara. If it's false information and you harm somebody, then it's worse. It is called Moitzi Shemra, defamation which is worse because not only does the information harm somebody, but it's even false to begin with. So remember, truth is what makes it Lashon Hara. If it's false, it's worse, it becomes called Moiti Shemra or defamation, which is the reverse of American law, where if something is true, it is not slander. It is only when it's false, because obviously God has a whole different system or understanding of what constitutes slander, than the American legal system. Because the true concept of slander is the ability through the communicative device of man to harm another individual. 
And it doesn't make a difference if it's true or false. <clears throat> Next idea. Just like it is forbidden to speak Lashon Hara, it is forbidden, forbidden to listen to Lashon Hara also. <clears throat> and even if you listen, it is forbidden to believe the Lashon Hara. That's right. And you may say, well, why can't I listen and believe what I hear about, what, about somebody else? And the answer is a very important answer. Do you know that most of the information that you hear about other people is either a lie, it's a distortion of what really happened, it is an exaggeration of what happened, or important parts of the story have been omitted that would have given you a completely different understanding of this story. Many times you walk over to the person that they're talking slander about and you ask him his version and he's got a different version. That's right. Therefore, you have no right to slander somebody, certainly to listen and believe unless you give the other person a chance to present his side of the story. And that's why it is forbidden to listen and believe Lashon Hara or slander. That is another very important halacha. <clears throat> Not only that, but if you think about it, there are four areas that you can harm somebody. What are the four areas? If you walk over to somebody and tell that person so and so, that somebody else hit their child, and that person then goes over to the other person and hits them, you are guilty of Lashon Hara. Because through your communication, you have caused physical harm. That person went over to the other person and hit them. If you walk over to another person and in, in the presence of a third embarrass them, <coughs> that is also Lashon Hara. Not only is that mavaza to embarrass another person in public because there's a third person listening, but you are also guilty of Lashon Hara because you have created emotional distress, emotional harm, which is also a harm, you see. And therefore that's also Lashon Hara. <clears throat> if you reveal to somebody a secret, and as a result of this revelation, somebody else loses money, that is also Lashon Hara. That's right. Monetary loss is a damage caused by your communication. That is also Lashon Hara. And the fourth area is probably the greatest of all. If as a result of what you say, somebody loses their social standing, you harm somebody's reputation, even an iota, <clears throat> you are guilty of Lashon Hara. And make no mistake, <clears throat> our reputation is the most important, the greatest asset that we have. That's right, because we relate to everybody through our reputation. The worst thing you could do is what? Is slander somebody, cause them a terrible loss of reputation. Nobody wants to have anything to do with that person. You see, isolation is one of the greatest uh, negative states that a person could be in. Therefore, to cause somebody's, somebody a harm in loss of reputation, social status, social acceptance, is probably the greatest damage you can do. All four areas, physical, emotional, monetary, and social status, reputation, all of them are lush and horror. Now, if we think about it, we begin to understand something very interesting. <clears throat> what is somebody who is doing or speaking lush and horror slander? What is the essence of what he is doing? And the answer is, he is a mazik. What is a mazik? A damage doer. He does damage, that's all. There are three ways of doing damage. You can walk over to somebody and punch him. So therefore you have done damage physically, using the physical body. <clears throat> you, can, you can have your dog bite somebody. <clears throat> so therefore your possession has done damage, right? But there's another way to do damage, and that is through your communicative ability, language. 
Therefore, there are three ways to do damage. <coughs> but in essence, somebody who speaks Lashon Hara is nothing more than a mazik, a damage doer. So then why is it when you look at the Torah, why is it when you look at the Chazal, the sages of the Talmud and the Midrash, why is it when you look at them, they speak lush, about Lashon Hara in terrible terms, much worse than if you merely harm them physically, much worse. Why? Now, in order for you to understand, I will give you examples of the rabbinical statements, the sayings by our Chazal and sages, and you will see that the way they talk about Lashon Hara is unbelievable. And the question is, why? Let's take a look. Uh, the Gemara says that there was an individual called Rabbi Agzambi, who's one of the great sages of the Talmud, and he made an announcement. He goes into the marketplace and he makes an announcement. And he says, me boys chaye, who wants to live long? Wow, living long? Living long is a billion dollar industry, billions of dollars in the United States, right? Everybody's preoccupied with longevity, right? Increasing the lifespan. So being who he was, everybody gathers around. Everybody wants to hear what this man's got to say. So he says, you know, you all people think, that sounds southern, doesn't it? You people think, Right? That the way to live long is what? Is what? Is by uh, working out in a gym, right? Or eating nutritiously. But I will tell you something interesting. It is not so important what goes in your mouth that determines the length of your life. It is much more important what goes out of your mouth that determines the length of your life. And he quotes a verse. Who is he who wants to live long? Guard your mouth, your tongue from speaking evil. Uh, so what Rabbi Al-Zan is saying is a very important idea. That not speaking Lashon Hara is a spiritual device uh, that will actually promote long life, give you longevity. This is what he's saying. It's incredible. This is what he's saying. You want to live long? The general rule is, don't slander. <clears throat> now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why? What does one have to do with the other? What is this magic? If I don't speak Lashon Hara, I mean, it's great that we live long, but why? This is the question. Second, Chazal, <clears throat> rabbinical statement. There's a Midrash that says the following. Omra Kodesh Bohu, God says, Yochlani lahatzl eschem. I can save you, be called sorrow from any problem, any trouble, any calamity, catastrophe, disaster, you name it. I can save you. I can minimize your problems and I can remove your problems on one condition. Ubalvad, that you do not speak Lashon horror, slander. This is what God says. This is the Almighty. God saying this, that if you do not speak Lashon horror, I will minimize and remove your source. This is what God says. And the Chofetz Chaim says on this particular uh, medrash that that's incredible. That that promise by God is so mind-boggling that even if it meant, and it doesn't mean, but even if it meant that you would have to be quiet for your entire life to secure that blessing, that promise, it's worth it. <clears throat> Who doesn't want to have a minimization of sorrows, problems and troubles? But the Chovetz Chaim says, but it's not necessary to be quiet. You merely have to know the laws of Lashon Hara, of slander. In fact, it was known that the Chovetz Chaim was an excellent conversationalist. 
you can chap in Yiddish a great schmooze, which means he was a great talking partner, the Chofetz Chaim. And believe me, the Chofetz Chaim didn't speak one word of Lashon Hara. The question is, we have to ask ourselves why. Why is it if you don't speak Lashon Hara, then the Rabbani Shalom says, God says, I will remove or minimize Tzaras. This is incredible. And I want to tell you something about God. He delivers. God delivers. Why? Because there's nothing in existence that can oppose him. Therefore, if he says, I'm going to do it, he does it. And there's no problem for him to do it. So you don't have to be concerned that he's going to welch on the deal or he can't do the problem. You don't have to be concerned. The question is, why? What does Lashon Hara have to do with, uh, with God's removing problems or minimizing problems? <clears throat> there's a third chazal. A third rabbinical statement, and that is, it's a Gemara. It's a Gemara in Talmud Yushami, the Jerusalem Talmud, and it's a Gemara Masech Tepeya. What does it say? The following. <clears throat> what is the greatest of all the mitzvahs? <clears throat> the greatest of all the mitzvahs is Talmud Torah, to learn Torah. That's right. That is it. That's the top of the line. And we say that in Davening. Talmud Torah keneged kulam. Learning Torah is equal in its stature. And its consequences, its reward level, to every other mitzvah combined. That's right. Talmud Torah is up there. So the Gemara says, just like Talmud Torah is the greatest of all mitzvahs, to learn the Torah is the greatest of all the mitzvahs, what is the greatest of all the sins? Interesting, huh? What's the greatest sin? Well, you know, yes, speaking Lashon Hara. The Gemara actually says that speaking Lashon Hara is the greatest of all sins. That's mind-boggling. Uh, you mean to tell me that Lashon Hara is worse than desecrating the Shabbos? Eating on Yom Kippur? How could that be? But that's what the Gemara says. That Lashon Hara is the greatest of all sins. Now, do not think that the Gemara is exaggerating just to try to get you to stop Lashon Hara. No. The Gemara doesn't do that. If the Gemara says it, then that's the truth. We have, to, we have to ask ourselves, why? How is this possible? And if I say to somebody else, Yaakov, eh, Yaakov's an idiot. That's worse than desecrating Shabbos and all the other terrible sins? Yes. Why? Now, I'm sure there are scholars in the audience that are saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't tell me this. There are three sins that if you are asked to transgress, you must allow yourself to be killed. If you are asked to transgress on the pain of death, you have to allow yourself to be killed. What are they? They are bloodshed. If you are asked to kill somebody or you die, you have to allow yourself to be killed. Bloodshed is one. Idolatry, bowing down to idols is two. Adultery, incest is three. So you're going to tell me, well, are you going to tell me that Lashon Hara is worse than these three? And you know what the Gemara says? Yes. That Lashon Hara is worse than, listen to this, and just hold on to your seats. That Lashon Hara is worse than bloodshed, idolatry, and adultery incest combined. Incredible. <clears throat> this is what slander is. <clears throat> And when we look at this, we have absolutely no idea how this could possibly be. What is this mystery? Now, let's take a look at another Chazal. There was a king in Israel, his name was Achav, Ahab. 
And the, Gemara, and the Medrash says, a very interesting Medrash. This man ruled for 40 years. He was king in Israel. He's one of the kings in Israel for 40 years. Right? And the Medrash says that in the generation of Ahav, Ahab, everybody worshipped idols. Could you imagine? All the Jews worshipping idols? It's incredible. Right? Imagine a guy had a lunch break. He whipped out his pocket idol and he bowed down. Right? Everybody was into it. Right? And so on. But there's a Medrash says something very interesting. That even though in the generation of Ahav, who reigned for 40 years, when he went to war, he never lost a battle in 40 years. You have any idea what that makes him? That makes him one of the greatest military strategists of all time. Equal in military prowess to who? To Caesar, Napoleon, Rommel. These are the guys that stand at the top of military abilities, right? He's as great as them. You know it's not to lose a war in 40 years? And, but that's what happened. But the Medrash says, why? Because nobody in the generation of Ahav spoke Lashon Hara. Did you believe this? Everybody's worshipping idols and nobody speaks Lashon Hara. Slander. Now, the Midrash doesn't say why this is true. How is it possible that they don't speak Lashon Hara and yet they all worship idols? doesn't say, but that's the historical fact. So therefore, because they did not speak Lashon Hara, they never lost a battle in 40 years. Why? That's incredible. And I want to tell you something. I could save the U.S. government billions of dollars because if they would make an edict that everybody in America has to stop slandering, they could remove their entire defense system because they don't need money. Because Lashon Hara or Shmir Saloshan would protect the entire nation where they could never lose a battle. That's right. It even goes for Goyim. However, I don't think they'll listen to me. <clears throat> in any case, because too many people are on the take. In any case, too many people make a living off the defense system. Anyway, <clears throat> the question is why? Now, lest you think this is incredible, let's hear what else the Medrash says. In the generation of Shaul, King Shaul, right? And David, David HaMelech, <clears throat> it says the, uh, <clears throat> that in that generation, there was an incredible amount of Torah knowledge. Did you ever wonder how much Torah did they know in those generations? Right? <clears throat> so the Medrash says, imagine you come home, right? <clears throat> and you're waiting for your kid to come back from school, from the yeshiva. And in walks your seven-year-old kid, right? And you want to have, you want to be proud, right? What's the object of all of this? Jewish nachas, right? So you want to be proud, correct? So you ask your kid, what did you learn in yeshiva today? <clears throat> and your seven-year-old kid's Rattles off a posuk, a verse. Not bad, right? <clears throat> Just rattles it off, right? Great. Now, since you are a parent, what does every parent want their kid to be? A doctor, a lawyer? Of course not. Every Jewish parent wants their child to be a rabbi, or at least a Talmud scholar, yes? So therefore you ask your kid, very nice. You quoted me a great posuk, verse. Darshan, which means expound on that verse. Let me hear a little sermon. Fine. How many ways could that kid expound on that posik that he quoted? Seven years old. Well, if I told you five ways, would you say that's not bad? This kid can rattle off five commentaries? Seven years old. Not bad. If I told you ten, what would you say? If I told you fifteen, You'd say, wait a minute, this is a kid? 
I told you 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. If I told you 48, what would you say? You would say, this is normal. This kid isn't a kid. This, is a, this kid is a god Hador. This is the greatest man in his generation. If a kid can expound 48 ways, could you imagine what the, the adults know? Yes. We begin to understand the yeshiva system that they had in the generation of Shaul. Now, even though they had such unbelievable amount of Torah, when it came, however, to go to war, they lost battle after battle after battle. Why? Because in the generation of Shaul, the entire generation spoke lush and horror, slander. Could you imagine? In a generation of Achav, where they worship idols, they never lose a battle in 40 years. In a generation that has Torah, which we cannot even comprehend, they lose battle after battle because they speak lush and horror. What is this all about? And I will tell you one more chazal, and then I will stop. But there are many more. Moshe Rabbeinu sees one Jew hitting another Jew in the beginning of Shemais, right? He sees one Jew hitting another Jew, and he had just killed the Egyptian who was beating another Jew. Uh, so he walks over to that, these two people and says, Russia, evil man, why are you hitting your fellow Jew? And this person turns to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, excuse me, who made you the boss? Are you going to, are you going to inform, are you going to tell what? Are you going to tell me, are you going to... Who made you the boss? <clears throat> this is what the, uh, that person says to Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, and he thinks to himself, okay, that this person, when he says to Moshe Rabbeinu, who made you the boss and so on, he thinks to himself that this Egyptian is going to inform the Parai. In fact, the Egyptian said to him, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? That's what he said to Moshe. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, aha, Surely the matter is known. Uh, what did Moshe Rabbeinu mean by surely the matter is known? What he meant is that what? Uh, that surely the matter is known that the fact that I killed this Egyptian is going to be known to Pharaoh. Why? Because this Jew is going to inform on me. That's what the plain meaning is. But Rashi says, no, that's not what, that, what the Moshe Rabbeinu meant when he said, Surely the matter is known. What Moshe Rabbeinu meant is the following. I have seen that the Jewish people are in exile for hundreds of years, a terrible exile, the Egyptian bondage. Why? And he never knew why. But when he saw that this person is going to inform on him that he killed the Egyptian, right? That's lush and horror. That's slander. Because he is informing to Parai a communication that can kill Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's exactly what happened. Pharaoh pursued Moshe and he had to run away. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, Aha, now the matter, now the matter is surely known to me Right? Now the reason why they are in exile is known to me because they speak lush and horror. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu says. Now the incredible concept of that is, wait a minute. The Jews in Egypt, we know, worshipped idols. We know this. So the fact that they worshipped idols in Egypt didn't constitute sufficient of an explanation as to why they were in exile. No, that didn't answer the question. But when Moshe Rabbeinu saw that they speak lush and horror, as indicated by these people, then he understood why. What does Lashon Hara have to do with the Egyptian bondage? The Golis Mitzrayim. And I want to tell you something. The reason why we're in exile for 2,000 years is because of Lashon Hara, as we will see. That's right. And the question is why?
What do we see? <clears throat> Unbelievable how the rabbis, how the chazal refer to Lashon Hara. Imagine, it will promote your life, a long life. It will remove problems, right? And troubles. That's the second thing. Is the greatest of all sins. Greater than the three sins you must give up your life for. Right? Will protect you even if you worship idols. Will not protect you even if you are the greatest terrorist scholar and is responsible for the exile in Egypt. I ask you, are we dealing here with slander or something else? This is the question. And of course my original question was, how could the Chofetz Chaim say that you can be elevated to the 90th percentile if you guard your tongue? Obviously, we don't understand what Lashon Hara is. Because if we look at the Chazal, there's something going on that is absolutely mind-boggling. What is the mystery, the primus, the internal understanding of Lashon Hara? This is the question. And this is the information that I want to impart and share with you tonight. <clears throat> In order to understand the mystery of Lashon Hara, we have to understand certain ideas first. <clears throat> we know God created the world. But when He created the world, He created it employing a certain principle called Din, justice. What is the definition of justice? The definition of justice is that if you do Act A, Act B follows. Yes, justice doesn't mean if you do something bad, you get punished. Uh, that is the narrow understanding of justice. What justice really means is, what you, you, is that what you do is what you get. Cause and effect. You do act A, there's an act B that follows. There's no such thing as doing something and there's no repercussion. That is the real meaning of din or justice. Why did God do that? Why create a world employing the concept of cause and effect? And God created that, right? And he inserted it into the universe. Why did he do that? Because God or the Rebbe wants you to earn the future world. Cause and effect. You do the mitzvot, mitzvahs, what? You will get the future world. You don't do the mitzvahs, then you jeopardize the future world. Cause and effect. That's din. Now, fine. So we understand why God inserted din or justice, cause and effect in this world. Now, if we understand this, if every cause has an effect, who is the one that determines the effect? If a person does a sin, who judges that person? And of course, the concept of judgment is to determine the effect, right? Because we know that's really what din, judgment, or justice is. <clears throat> Does God judge sins? Does he judge the Jews? The answer is no, not at all. God does not sit in judgment on the Jewish people. Only in very rare instances. I know that comes as a surprise. Now, how do I know this? The Chofetz Chaim says, there's a verse, a posuk that says, that God does not look at the sins of Jacob, referring to Jews, at all. Except in very rare occasions. When is that? For instance, on Rosh Hashanah, when God is the king, that's when he displays his kingship, <clears throat> that's when he will judge the entire universe, the entire creation. Yes, there are certain other times when God sits in judgment, when, for instance, if all of a sudden the entire Jewish nation is in a dangerous situation, what's called the Mokam Sakona, then God will be the Yeshiv Rosh. 
He will be the judge of what happens. But other than that, God does not judge the Jews. Then who does judge the Jews? Who judges when a person sins? And the answer is, God created a heavenly tribunal, a bezdin, a heavenly tribunal that consists of angelic beings. Yes, they judge mankind. They judge the Jewish, Jewish nation. Uh, they sit and look over the sins and they determine the sentence as a result of each sin. Fine. And I want to tell you something, even though we don't realize that, every single thing that happens to a person, <clears throat> whether good or bad, certainly bad, is a result of the xero, the decree or the verdict of that court. That's right. That is the concept of a judicial body in heaven that judges the Jews, mankind, etc. Now, we can ask a question. When do they sit in judgment? What gets them started? <clears throat> if a person sins, if you sin, right, we'd expect a judgment. And the answer is, not at all. A guy can sin in a week and commit 1,000 sins and nothing will happen to him. Nothing. Why? Because there's no judgment the entire week. Lest you think that the judges are away on vacation, that is not the issue. And that's not really what happens. Because they do not judge mankind as a result of sin. So then when do they judge? I mean, when they judge, it's about sin, but not because and the sin does not invoke the judicial proceedings. So the question is, what does? <clears throat> the answer is that God appointed an angel, a malach. He is the only one that can invoke the judicial proceeding. He initiates the judicial proceedings. That's right. He has to come in front of the court and say, members, I want you to sit in judgment about a certain sin committed about a certain person. Then they sit in judgment. What does that mean? God created an angel. His name is the Satan, the Satan. Yes, the Satan has three jobs. The first job is the concept called the Yetzahara. He enters the psyche of man and he attempts him to do a sin. In that guise or role, he is known as the Yetzahara. And that is the first role of the Satan. Actually, he has three different jobs. And this is the first job. The second job of the Satan is what happens after that person committed a sin, then he is, of course, uh, uh, a committed to sin as a result of the temptation of the Satan. Then what happens is, is that Satan takes off his first hat and he puts on his second hat, right? And in that role he is called, not the Eight Sahara, but he is called the Satan. The Satan is a name for that being. That angel, whose real name is Sam, really has another name, Samuel. In, in any case, that's his real name. That's his name. But when he's doing different jobs, he's called different things. When he is prosecuting, <clears throat> right? When he's the heavenly prosecutor or DA, he's called the Sutton. That's what he's called. Therefore, in that role, the Sutton and the name Sutton or the term Sutton refers to the concept that he's an adversary. He's a prosecuting angel. He sits there and he prosecutes. And part of the prosecution is that he invokes the judgment. He calls the court together and says, I have a certain matter to reveal and that this person did a sin. I want you angels to sit in judgment. In that role, he is called the Sutton, the adversary, the adversary, or he's called Makatrig, which means the prosecutor, the prosecuting angel, and he is now involved in what's called Kitrug. 
<clears throat> and he prosecutes the sultan. The sultan prosecutes. <clears throat> if that person is found guilty, then the sultan takes off his second hat, puts on his third hat, and in that role he is called the Malchamovist, the angel of death. Not that he kills the person, but he is also responsible, responsible to execute the judgment or the verdict of the court. Three jobs for one angel. Tempter, prosecutor, and executioner for one malach. And let me tell you something, he never gets tired, never. Nobody can wear him out, even though he's always doing these three jobs. Now, if we understand this, then we have to ask ourselves a very important idea. <clears throat> Is it possible to stop the heavenly prosecutor, the sultan? Let's take a look. We know <clears throat> that the sultan, so the question I ask, is it possible to stop the sudden? However, think about it. We know that God does not judge mankind or Jews. That's the first thing that we know. Now, we also know that even though the heavenly tribunal judges a person, correct? They only judge a person if there's a kitruk, if that's a prosecution. Therefore, the one who is responsible for all the tsuris of Klai Yisrael, all the problems that the Jews have, is who? Is the sudden, obviously. Uh, so the question that I ask, is it possible to stop, stop the sultan, is of enormous import. It's incredibly significant. Because if it's possible to stop the sultan, could you imagine what that means? That means you will prevent yourself from getting into all kinds of problems. And the answer is yes. It is possible to stop the sultan. That's right. You can walk over to the sultan and lock him into his house. You could put tape over his mouth so he can't prosecute. It is possible to stop the sudden. But you have no idea how valuable that information is. <clears throat> because if he's responsible for all the problems that we have, could you imagine what it is if you could stop him? I want to tell you something. People who are on trial for murder, imagine if they were able to stop their trial. They would give any amount of money to stop their trial, right? <clears throat> when they're being judged for a murder case. Right? Could you imagine how much it's worth if you had the information how to stop the Sutton? Because the Sutton makes an American district attorney look like Mickey Mouse when it comes to prosecution. And the answer is you can stop the Sutton. The question is how. In fact, that's very valuable information. If I wanted to auction off that information, I will tell the highest bidder that information, okay? Who is going to give me the highest bid? I'll auction it off. What will you pay for this information? Since you know that it's so critical. Do I hear any bids here? I hear nothing. It must be hard times. <clears throat> In any case, I'll tell you what. I will tell you this information for free because you have come out on such a rainy night. In any case, I will tell you the most important information you can ever hear for free. How's that? What a bargain. <laughs> and all Jews love bargains. <laughs> However, you have no idea what you're bargaining for. In any case, how is it possible to stop the sudden? I will tell you. There's a certain concept called midu keneged midu, measure for measure. What does measure for measure mean? God runs the world through midu keneged midu, measure for measure. What does that really mean? What it means is as follows. <clears throat> 
We know that God created the world employing a concept called din or justice. What midah connected midah, measure for measure, is really din, but it's a peculiarity in din. What does justice or din say? That says that if you do act A, then it is act B that follows. What measure for measure says, midah connected midah says, is that if you do act A, it is not act B that follows, but it is the mirror image of A. That's what follows, not B. It is A reversed. It's mirror image. Why is that so? So that if you look at the punishment, you can figure out the crime because the punishment is the mirror image of the crime. Also, because the mirror image of the sin that you committed is absolute justice. You get what you did. In any case, God conducts the world through Mida Kenegin Mida. And because of measure for measure, it is possible to stop the judicial process, which means stopping the sudden. How? I will show you. Somebody walks over to you and says, you know, I owe you money, and it is due today, but I don't have it. Do me a favor. Do me a big favor. Extend the terms of the loan, means let me extend the time that I can pay you, or let me pay you in installments. And you think about it, and you say, okay, what are you doing? You are doing what's called being marachim, which means you are acting with compassion. Even though this man owed it to you today, and you can claim it today, you're being compassionate. You're giving him a little more time. That's Rahmanus, right? That's compassion. So come and listen. That the absolute law of the universe is measure for measure. If you acted compassionately, then the judicial court must be Marachim, must act compassionately to you. What does that mean? <clears throat> that means if you committed a sin, right? And you're prosecuted, correct? And you're prosecuted, then automatically, before they do anything to you, Correct? They have to walk over to your file, your portfolio of what? Of mitzvahs, good deeds. They open it up and they see, wait a minute, this person was compassionate. What is the definition of mercy or compassion? The definition of mercy is the suspension of judgment. The suspension of justice is mercy. So they say, just like you were merciful, we will be merciful to you and we will suspend the guilty verdict on your sin. What does that gain you? Because it's only suspended, not removed. Because if you repent, if you do tshuva, they throw the case out. So you gain time that you may be able to repent and throw the whole case out of court. But how do you stop the judicial process? And the answer is because of measure for measure. If you walk over to a person and you say, you know, you did me an injustice, but I will forgive you. I will forego. I will overlook what you did to me. That is called mavi amidoisov, where you are overlooking something that somebody did that was an insult, an injury, whatever, to you. That's being mavi amidoisov, right? So the law is that because you forgave somebody else, right? Some kind of an insult that they did to you or harm, whatever. So measure for measure, then the court of law up there, they say because you forgave or pardoned a person, without any other reason because the fact that you wanted to, we will forgive you, we will throw a case, a sin against you, right? And we'll throw it right out of court. Measure for measure. <clears throat> Not bad. <clears throat> but what did I say? That besides Rahmanus, which is compassion or forgiving others, <clears throat> the greatest way to stop, right? The judicial process as a result of a sin you commit is doing what? Is what? Is... If you remember, it's to stop the Sutton, to stop the heavenly district attorney, 
Right? Because he's the only one that can invoke the judicial process. But how do we do that? And I will tell you. Imagine that this is a courtroom. And in that seat, and in the seat, you are sitting, being judged by the heavenly tribunal. And in front of you is an awesome angelic being. And his name is a Sultan. And he is pointing his heavenly finger at you. And he's saying, that person sinned, and I'm going to prove it. And in front of you is this court and angels defending and so on. And you're sitting there and you're trembling. Why? Because you know what's going on. Your soul knows what's going on. <clears throat> the question is, what is happening? And the answer is, the Sutton is prosecuting you. Correct? But wait a minute. What is the nature of a prosecution? Think of it. Every prosecution, is it not lost and horror? Yes. Every prosecution is slander. What's the definition of lost and horror? Any communication that can harm, right? A, a fellow Jew. Well, isn't that what the Sultan is trying to do to you? Isn't he trying to harm you with a communication? Of course he is. That's what every prosecution is. <clears throat> Correct? The only thing is, is that he has a right to speak Lashon Hara about you. But that's what he's doing. <clears throat> he's fundamentally speaking Lashon Hara about you. Because that is what a prosecution is. So then come and hear a very critical idea. <clears throat> and this idea, concept, is the secret of Lashon Hara, and it is brought down in the Zoyar. That's its origin. It is brought down by the Chofetz Chaim, by the Dubna Magid, by Rab Chaim Vital, and so on, Rab Eli Lapian, by many other people. <clears throat> this Zoyar, what it says. Listen to what the Zoyar says. That just like you can, in, you can stop the judicial process, how? Right? Mida Keneg Mida, measure for measure. You can also initiate the judicial process, measure for measure. How? <clears throat> Every time you slander somebody, you condemn somebody, you badmouth somebody, so the court turns to the sultan and says, he is condemning, slandering, come on over. We want to hear some slander that you have about this guy. That is a prosecution. Mita connected mita. You badmouth? The sudden bad mouths. <clears throat> For every sin that you say, he can condemn you or he can prosecute you one time. <clears throat> For one sin. For every sin of Lashon Hara, he can try you for one sin. A second sin of Lashon Hara, he can try you for two sins. That's right. <clears throat> Which is incredible. What do we see? That the secret of Lashon Hara is because it's measure for measure. You condemn, slander, he can condemn and slander you in front of a court. Uh, what do we see, therefore? Is that the secret of Lashon Hara or slander <clears throat> is that it reveals, it exposes your sins, your portfolio of sins to the heavenly district attorney. That's right. To the prosecuting angel, measure for measure. That's what it really does. In other words, it allows access of the sultan to your entire portfolio of sins because of measure for measure. In many ways, it's like a bullet. A bullet can kill, <clears throat> but without a gun, it can't fire. You may have a sin, but without a judgment, nothing happens to you. The sin is the bullet, but what's the gun? Lush and horror. That's what you load it into. You fire. 
That's what destroys the Gunners Lush and Hara. <clears throat> this is the secret of Lush and Hara. A very important, powerful idea that Lush and Hara is what reveals, exposes, and allows access of the Sultan as a prosecuting angel to your entire portfolio of sins. Every sin of Lashnara you commit, he can try you once and so on. Imagine, <clears throat> some guy gets on the phone, right? His lunch break, <clears throat> and he calls up a friend. It is possible that in the space of a half hour that you have a conversation with a friend, you could have spoken over 100 sins of Lashnara. And it's not a problem. There are people that do it in the hundreds, 500. Yes, because <clears throat> almost every sentence is the sin of Lush and Hara. Second sentence, another sin. Do we know how many sentences we speak? Of course not. Could you imagine being sentenced, being judged 100, 200 times on your lunch break? You imagine what that is? But that's exactly what happens. Imagine a guy goes to the phone, picks up the phone and he dials the district attorney. And he says, you know, I just committed a sin. Why did you come and get me? What would you say about this person? You'd say that he's a perfect candidate for a psychiatric consultation. <laughs> Correct? Because this guy is nuts. Correct? Right? But that's exactly what we do. When we do what? When we speak Russian horror, it's like looking over to the house of the Sutton, ringing his doorbell and saying, you know, I have an hour free. Why not go to court? <laughs> he's only too happy to oblige. The only problem is, is that you are the defendant. <clears throat> but that's literally what takes place. We invite him into court. We ring his bell. <clears throat> this is what Loshan Hara does. <clears throat> now, you may say, wait a minute, this is incredible. Wait a minute. I thought God loves Jews. Why would God do this? Why would God, why would God tie right, our judgment to what we say? Well, why does he do this? So we're always being judged. This is incredible. I thought God loves Jews, right? It's a good question. Do you know what the answer is? It is because God loves Jews that he did this. Now, what does that mean? I will tell you. Think of it. If you do a sin, correct? <clears throat> Imagine. <clears throat> does God judge you? No. Look how many protections you have. You should know God loves the Jewish people. He doesn't want them to be harmed. They're his children. <clears throat> so he puts all kinds of barriers in front of them. Take a look at the barriers. <clears throat> One, you sin, <clears throat> repent. If you repent, he throws it out of court. Then the court throws out the sin. You don't repent, you don't do tshuva, correct? <clears throat> right? Does God judge you? No. Who judges you? The court. But what can they do? They can't judge you either. They got to wait for who? For the sultan to prosecute, for the kidrub. But wait a minute, the Sutton, can he haul you into court? No, he's got to wait for your Lush and Hara. <clears throat> Take a look. What, what God did is an incredible thing. He gave you control over your own judgment. So therefore God says, don't speak Lush and Hara. So even if you have sins, there's no judgment. Wow, what a love that God showed us. It's the reverse we look at it at the negative because we speak Lush and Hara, but what happens if you look at it at the positive? That we can control the judicial process itself. What a chesed that God did. <clears throat> and therefore, this is what emerges. You do not speak Lush and Hara, it is impossible almost for the Sultan to haul you into court. 
And then the uh, Dubna Magid says this beautifully. That is incredibly difficult for the Sultan to get you into court if you don't speak Lashon Hara. Could you imagine that the Sultan is schwitzing? He's sweating on how to get you into court. <clears throat> Could you imagine? <clears throat> That's the control that God gave you. Fine. <clears throat> now, it is possible, by the way, to be judged without speaking Lashon Hara. Yes, it is possible. How? For instance, if you are in a Mokm Sakana, in a dangerous place, you will be judged to see if you will live or die. If you walk into a dangerous place, automatically there's a judgment to see if you will live or die. Once you are in a judgment, there's always prosecutions against, and there are angels for, automatically. <clears throat> so merely by walking into a dangerous place, you are automatically judged. But let me ask you something. How often do you go into a dangerous place? I'm from New York. We're being judged all the time. <laughs> you people live in deal. You know how often are you judged? So it comes out that 95% of the time, uh, that what? That you're judged is because you spoke Lashon Hara, not because it's a dangerous place. Now, you may say to me the following, wait a minute, not so fast. <clears throat> I have a very good question. You see that when we speak Lashon Hara, it's a judgment, right? Because we allow the Sultan to, judge, to prosecute and it's a judgment. According to you, what are you talking about? I speak Lashon Hara, you'll say, right? And my friends speak Lashon Hara. Nothing happens to me, nothing happens to him, to them. According to you, people should be dropping like flies. But that doesn't happen, so what are you talking about? Correct? Very good question. Because what happens in reality, right, is not consistent or conforms to my entire approach. Now, you're probably hoping I don't have an answer. But I do. I will tell you why. <clears throat> Listen very carefully. You speak Lashon Hara. There's an immediate judgment for every sin. That's almost every sentence, by the way. Fine. Well, automatically there's a prosecution. Now, first of all, you may not be found guilty. And therefore, you're not punished. But what happens if you're found guilty? Can all of a sudden the court turn to the sultan and say, okay, execute the judgment? No. Do you remember what I said? The universal principle of what? Measure for measure? <clears throat> the court must do what? They must go over to the portfolio of mitzvahs that you did. That's right. Before they, they uh, <clears throat> sentence you with a verdict and so on. <clears throat> now, do you know that the average Jew does hundreds of mitzvahs every day, even though you don't know about it? Imagine you're getting up in the morning and you're going to shul. Yes? And you see another guy. And you say, you nod your head and you say hello. And you continue walking. Now, you don't know. Maybe you lifted that person's spirits. Maybe that person got up in the morning and he felt depressed for whatever reason. And when you said hello, you made him feel a little happier. That was a chesed. That was a mitzvah. You don't even know you did it. The average Jew does hundreds of mitzvahs every day. It is those mitzvahs of chesed, of kindness, and rachmonus, and compassion, right? That we do daily. That surround us like a shield. That's why the sin can't get, can't get to us. Even though we're prosecuted and we're found guilty. We've got all these mitzvahs that protect us, measure for measure. Correct? But let me ask you something. Nobody wants to rely on their mitzvahs, on their merits, to protect themselves against prosecutions. Correct? Even a tzaddik does not want to rely on his merits against the heavenly DA. Correct? Do you ever hear an English expression, when it rains it pours? Do you ever notice that when you have problems, they come in bunches? Why? I will give you the metaphysical explanation. 
<clears throat> for a common observance, which even has its own statement when it rains, it pours. Imagine a woman. She gets up in the morning and she goes off the bed and all of a sudden she bangs her foot in the dresser. Bangs her foot. She says, wait a minute. Then she's about to lift herself and the alarm clock falls on her head. So what's going on here? Uh, then all of a sudden she gets a phone call in the morning, right? And her husband calls her up and says, by the way, I, it's bad news. I just lost two of my best clients. Says, Wait a minute, right? Then she goes into her kid's bedroom to send them off to yeshiva, right? A three-year-old kid, kindergarten, whatever. And she finds that a kid took a knife and scratched her most expensive piece of furniture. She can't believe this. And then all of a sudden the phone rings. Right? And on the other end is her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law says, you know, I'm decorating. I'm moving into your house for two months. <laughs> and she says, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. It didn't pay to get up. <clears throat> What's happening? I will tell you. Because all those sins that were hanging and being protected because of the acts and kindness, all of a sudden, the court of law looked into the bin and was empty. So they turned to the sot and they said, get her. <laughs> That's why. Yes. What must you do? I will tell you. You will instantly pick up the phone and call the rabbi, and you will say, I want to make a large donation to the shul. Because you need a mitzvah. Exactly. That's what you're going to do. Commission. In any case, <laughs> this is what you do. What do we see? An incredible thing. That's why. People are not harmed. Of course everybody speaks Lashon Hara. But a Jew is surrounded by an incredible amount of mitzvahs. But what happens all of a sudden when the bin is empty? Then it's bad news. And our problem is we don't know which sin the sultan picks. And all of a sudden you see a person, wham, bankruptcy, divorce, sickness. You ever see certain people go one after the other? It's incredible. We just... Well, not giving examples and so on. And so on. Why is this? Because all of a sudden they've used up their merits. Don't be lulled into a false sense of security that you can speak all the Lush and horror you want and nothing happens to you. No. You are merely being protected for the moment. But when it hits, you don't know what's going to hit you and you don't know how often. Fine. Now, who is judged? Who is judged when a person speaks Lush and horror? The speaker, meter can and meter, measure for measure. You speak Lashon Hara, correct? Then the Sutton speaks, what? Against you, measure for measure. Right? Measure for measure. If you listen to Lashon Hara, then the court says, excuse us, prosecutor, come on over. He's listening to condemnations and slander. We want to listen to what you have to say about him. Measure for measure. But you know who's also judged? I will tell you. The one you speak about, the subject of the conversation, is also judged. And you see, this is incredible. It's bad enough, right, that they talk Lush and horror about me, behind my back. I got to get schlepped to court too? And the answer is yes. But the question is why? And the answer is because of a concept called ayin horror, an evil eye. <clears throat> what is an ayin horror, really? I will tell you. What an iron horror is, is the following. Because every Jew has an incredible lofty position, if a Jew questions another Jew's position and his right to have something, since he is such an important person, all of a sudden that invokes an investigation in heaven. Well, all of a sudden the court says, hey, uh, this person says that person doesn't, believe, doesn't deserve to have what they have. Hey, let's check it out. 
Now, it could be that person is okay, deserves, so nothing happens. An eye in horror can only invoke a judicial proceeding. It can't do anything more. But let me tell you something. All the things we have, right? Our houses and cars and all the good things. You think we have them because we are such sadikim? Because we're such righteous people? No. The reason why we have it is because God loves Jews. And he gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. The last thing we need is a judicial court scrutinizing and investigating to see if we deserve to have it. That's what Einhard does. It gets you on all those areas that we only have it because of the chesed of God, the enormous love that God has for the Jewish people. <clears throat> Therefore, that person you speak about is also judged. Amazing. You should know one thing, and you should know also the power of Ein Hora. When you tell somebody what you're going to do, and then that person gives you an Ein Hora, you probably will lose whatever you have. That's why the Gemara says, is a dova matzliach, what thing is successful, dova asoma mino ayim, that which is concealed from the eye. That's right. <clears throat> In any case, we understand why the subject is also judged. Do you know that 90% of all ayin horrors are delivered through Lashon Hara? Because it's its most frequent vehicle. That's right. It's incredible. What are the repercussions of what I'm saying? Think about it. In any given day, 90% of the Jewish people are in court. Do you know that? And that's not because there are so many Jewish lawyers. <laughs> the reason why we're in court is either because you speak Lashon Hara, or you listen to Lashon Hara, or because you are the subject of somebody else's conversation. Is there any wonder why Jews have such tremendous problems? It is not the sins of Jews that are destroying the Jews. It is the exposing, is the Lashon Hara that is killing the Jews. What happens if you don't speak Lashon Hara? Shmir Salashon, you guard your tongue. Aha, that is what's called an umbrella policy. That's right. What does that mean? It means the following. You don't speak Lashon Hara, then the Sultan cannot speak against you measure for measure. You don't speak, he cannot speak. Right. What happens if you don't listen to Lashon Hara? <coughs> so then the Sutton, even if you what, if you don't listen, even if you spoke, since you don't listen to Lashon Hara, Bezdin says, the court says, we don't want to listen to you because he doesn't listen and believe Lashon Hara, right? And what happens if you are the subject of somebody's conversation? So the tribunal says, listen, if he doesn't listen to Lashon Hara, we don't want to listen to Lashon Hara even with an Ayan Hara. <coughs> Therefore, the greatest protection against Ayan Hara isn't the red ribbon, <laughs> it is Shmir's Haloshin. That's right. <clears throat> right? Whatever ribbons they're doing these days, you know. <clears throat> right? It's none of that. It is Shmir's Haloshin. But you understand it's mechanics. Why? You see, and therefore it is an unbelievable protection. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying sin and don't talk Lashon Hara. No. I'm not saying that at all. <clears throat> but we all sin, correct? So at least if we sin and we don't repent, at least let's not expose our sins to the heavenly district attorney. Now, I will give you four words, four magic words, that if you say to yourself, it will help you incredibly not to speak Lashon Hara. That's right, four words. In fact, you should write it on your telephone. Write these words, because that's where most of the Lashon Hara is spoken. You know what the four words are? Is it worth it? 
That's all. Just ask yourself, is it worth it? This person on the other end is about to speak Lashon Hara. Either speak, I'm going to speak, listen, and so on. Wait a minute, is this worth it? Think about it. I'll be judged, he'll be judged, and the subject is judged. It's not worth it. I don't care what's called in Yiddish how geschmack is the gossip or the slander that's translated as. I don't care how juicy is the gossip that he's going to tell me. It's not worth it. If, we, if you know that you're in a hot seat, right, it's not worth it. Because you don't know what the sudden's going to pull up. You don't know what kind of sin he's going to pull up, right? It is not worth it. That's all. Just ask yourself, is it worth it? And automatically, you will think ten times. Now, you may feel it is worth it. That's your decision. However, just put those words on the phone. Now, you may say the following. This is incredible. You mean to tell me if I do not speak Lashon Hara, I will hardly ever be judged? And you know what the answer is? No, you will be judged. And I will tell you why. If you do a sin, there's only two ways to get rid of that sin. Either you repent, in which case it's thrown out. What happens if you don't repent? Then you are judged and you are giving suffering. It's soon. That's the only other way to expiate the sin. You can't chuck it, doesn't go away. You've got to remove it, either through repentance or through suffering. That's the only two ways. <clears throat> so if you repent, fine. What happens in all those sins that we don't repent? And believe me, that's most of them. Correct? A lot of them anyway. So then what happens? Well, there's a judgment. And, and if you're found guilty, you have to suffer. Now, immediately, whenever there's a concept of judgment and a suffering, you are judged. And whenever there's the concept of judgment, there is always the concept of a prosecuting angel. So you see that you are judged on all sins you didn't repent, whether you speak Lashon Hara or not. So then what's the difference if I speak Lashon Hara, if anyway I am judged and therefore there's a prosecution automatically by the mere fact that I did not repent? That's a very good question. Correct? <clears throat> I have the answer. I will tell you a profound answer. And you have to think about this because the direction that all of us take depends on your decision. Every Jew has to make the decision which direction you want to go. <clears throat> if you speak Lashon Hara, there's an automatic judgment. A judgment means there is a heavenly tribunal, there is a prosecuting angel. Now, <clears throat> if you are found guilty, you may not be found guilty, but if you are, you will be punished. The only way to suspend that punishment is what? Is measure for measure. You've got to do what? Have merits that will shield you against that for a certain amount of time. Right? But if you do not have those merits, they're going to get you. Because this court only knows one thing, justice. You, you can either remove the justice by being not guilty or by shielding it by an act of mercy and kindness. But that's it. You don't have that, you get it. Because only justice prevails in that court. What happens if you do not speak Lashon Hara? Then the court does not judge you. The prosecuting angel can do nothing. Uh, but wait a minute. What about all those sins you did without repentance? And the answer is, God judges you, not the court. What's the difference? The difference is as follows. It's like walking over to a judge and saying, you know, I don't, look, I don't like the look of that jury and that prosecutor you know, let's walk into your chambers and make a deal. Now, God doesn't make deals. What God does is this. God loves the Jewish people. And he's filled with mercy and compassion. And so what God does is the following. He judges you by himself, without the courts, because you never threw yourself into the court system. Therefore, God looks at you and says, wait a minute, <clears throat> you just sinned. Even though you have no merits, I will do nothing. 
Because since you don't have to defend the reason why you suspend the judgment through merits, in my system, you don't have to do that because it's between you and me since you never spoke Lashonara. You have no merits, it doesn't make a difference. My mercy will cover you. And I won't do anything to you for an entire year. Instead, I will get you to go to different shurim, lectures that talk about the sin that you committed. Right? And maybe you repent. A year goes by and you don't repent. So God says, come on. Right? I'll give you a little patch, which means a little blow. A wake-up call. Right? Whereas in the other court, if you spoke Lashon Hara and you were guilty and you had no merits, they would have whacked you right away in the full measure. But in the system of God, a year goes by and nothing happens. Now a year goes by, God looks at you and says, come on. What do I do? So God says, what? I have to punish you at some measure because you're not doing repentance. But I will do what? I will give you a little whack. Wake up call. Another year goes by and you do nothing. So now God says, I have to begin the punishment. But I will spread it over five years, which makes it much easier. Or, right, instead of spreading over five years, I won't do it to your physical body. I will do it to your possessions, which is easier. Because every time God deals between you and him without the court system, there's always compassion. Sure, you get suffered, but look at the difference in the suffering between you and God, who is Ovinum Arkenu, our father and our king, and between the tribunal and the prosecuting angel. Look at the difference. Therefore, we all must decide what we want to do, right? We all get judged. You want to face God, your father, or you want to face the Sultan, and he's not interested in any Rahmanus except if you deserve it, but he couldn't care less. Oh, that's what you have to decide. Now, if we understand this, we really understand now. You must make a decision. You sin, do tshuva. You don't do tshuva, don't speak Lashnara. If you do that, you will always be in the system of God. And therefore, God will always deal gently with you. What a difference if your father has to judge you or if the prosecuting angel has to judge you. Now that we understand this, we can go back to all the questions I asked. First question, <clears throat> Rebel Alexandri said, who wants to live? Why is it you live long? And the answer is obvious. Because if you speak Lush and Hara, you are always in the court system of who? The Sutton, as a prosecuting angel, and the, and the heavenly tribunal. That system, they couldn't care less in the sense of what you do. It's justice that prevails. You do a sin, you're guilty, and there's no mercy, you get whacked. <clears throat> of course, how long can a person last? That's why people die. However, in the court system of God, what happens? Since God will give you mercy even you don't deserve it, because God doesn't have to defend his actions in front of a court system, which he created to administer justice, but if you're out of that system and in his court system, he can do whatever he wants, therefore God will always deal with you gently, which means wrong life, little suffering. That's what it means. You see the beautiful logic of it. Second Chazal, where God says, don't speak Lashon Hara, I can remove any problems, minimize, remove, don't speak. <clears throat> you understand? Because if you speak Lashon Hara, you're in the judicial system. God does not intervene in the judicial system because he created that. He voluntarily subjugates himself to that system. He created to do administer justice. You were crazy enough by speaking Lashon Hara to get into that system. Hey, it's your tough luck, right? Therefore, God cannot minimize or remove tsarot or tsaris, right? But if you're in the system of God where you do not speak Lashonara, so between you and God, of course I can minimize your problems. I'll just spread them out. You see, the beauty of understanding, once you understand the principle, Lashonara, is it the greatest of all sins? Of course it's the greatest of all sins. 
but it's really not. What does the Gemara mean? It means this. Of course, desecrating the Shabbos is worse than speaking Russian horror, right? In its severity. <clears throat> so therefore, of course, there are many sins that are worse than Russian horror. Bloodshed, idolatry, adultery, incest, and so on. <clears throat> in terms of the severity, <clears throat> just look at the punishment. However, in terms of the consequences, the greatest of all sins is Russian horror. Because if you desecrate the Sabbath, nobody knows. Except if you open it up to judicial review. But if you speak Lashon Hara, in terms of itself, it's not as severe as desecration of the Shabbos, but in terms of its consequences, it exposes what you just did, or all your other sins, to the Sultan. That's what the Gemara means. That Lashon Hara is worse in its consequences than every single sin in the Torah. Because it not only has a punishment in and of itself as a sin, but it also exposes measure for measure what you did, you see. And we now understand Achov, Ahab, how is it possible that they worship idols and never lose a battle 40 years? Because if they never spoke Lashon spoke they were never judged for 40 years regarding their idolatry. What luck to have done the mitzvah that would protect them the greatest against the worst sin, which is idolatry, you see. Uh, so even a generation that spoke, that, that worshipped idols was protected because they didn't speak Lashon What an incredible... Uh, 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 lucky break for these people but in the generation of Shaul <clears throat> even though they were such incredible uh, Torah scholars since even, even though their sins were minor compared to the generation of Achav but it doesn't make a difference since they spoke Lashon every minor sin was revealed and therefore they were punished severely imagine you go to a traffic court right so the first time you run a red light one. But let's assume you run a red light 30 days in a row and you were caught 30 days in a row, right? Even though each individual infraction, right, is a traffic violation, but I guarantee you after 30 days it becomes a felony. <laughs> That's what happened to the generation of Saul, you see. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu says, look, I know that these people worship idols, but they're not judged. They don't talk lush and horror. Why are they in this exile? So Moshe Rabbeinu says, aha, this person is going to inform on me what I did to that Egyptian. That's Lashon Hara. That's Mesira. That's informing. Aha, the Jews speak Lashon Hara. So, not surely the matter that I killed the Egyptian is known to Paroi. Not even surely the matter <clears throat> that, uh, that, that why the Egyptians are in, why the, uh, this, why the Jews are in exile for so long, right, is also concealed for me. But now I know why they are not judged, why they are judged, because they speak Lashon Hara. Now I understand what the story is. Because they speak Lashon Hara, therefore the sins that they have, including idolatry, is exposed. And therefore they are in exile for so many hundreds of years. Fine. Take a look at what we know. Isn't it incredible? Look at what Lashon Hara does. Slender. We're not talking about here about the average sin. What Lashon Hara does, if you guard your tongue, it will prolong your life. It will minimize problems for you and your family. Right? It's the greatest of all the sins in the sense that it will protect you. It is the worst of the sins in terms of its consequences. It is so great in its performance that it will protect you even if you have terrible sins, including idolatry. It will protect you. And he's responsible for the exile. Could you imagine what a whopper Lashon Hara is? So therefore, we have to what's called good ourselves. Think about it. <clears throat> Just ask yourselves, is it worth it 
That's what you have to ask yourself. Is it worth it to speak Lashon Hara? And the answer is, of course not. But you must learn the laws of Lashon Hara. You must learn the laws of Lashon Hara. In order to know what constitutes true speech and what constitutes slander. And it's not as simple as you think. And I want to tell you something. You know, if you have a halachic question, I don't know what the halacha, the halach is, right? You go to your rabbi, correct? Do you know who the greatest rabbi in the laws of Lashon Hara? Who the greatest rabbi is of all time? The answer is the Sultan. Because he has to know every law because he's got to know how to schlep you into court and when not to schlep you. Yes, he knows every law of Lashon Hara down pat. Because it's what he's got to do, right? You've got to learn the laws of Lashon Hara. Because I'm not talking here about observing a negative commandment. I'm talking about protecting yourself and your family from incredible harm. Take a look at what I presented. That's what Lashon Hara is. And I'm going to talk about a second dimension of Lashon Hara. <clears throat> if you think what you heard now is incredible, wait for the second part of which I will talk about. I'm now going to speak about the second dimension of Lashon Hara, and that is actually much worse than the first. Not only is it much worse than the first, but there's something very fascinating. It will also explain the underlying principle of human history, especially Jewish history. And that's really why it's so fascinating. Now, we, we, when we think about it, we've seen before that Lashonara can harm us, but the truth is it's much more devastating than we think from the previous lecture. In what way? Why doesn't the Mashiach come? What's the problem? Why was the Beit the HaMikdosh, the two temples, destroyed? Why are we in exile for 2,000 years? These are very good questions. What is the reason, what is responsible? And the answer is, as we will see, it is Lashon Hara, slander. That is what's responsible. And therefore, as a result of this, what we begin to realize, how serious and how devastating is this sin? So therefore, I will now begin to talk about the second dimension. God created a world. How does he do it? Well, what he does, very simply, is he sends forth from himself what is called a divine emanation, a divine flow. Okay? That's what it's, it's called a shefa in Hebrew, or hashpo. This is a divine flow that God sends forth, and this flow creates and sustains all beings. Everything that exists, it's, it creates and sustains. In fact, everything has this flow coming into it. It's like a cable. Everything in the universe, literally, even angels, everybody, anything that exists in creation must be connected to God through this divine flow. It's like a cable that goes from you to God. Through that cable goes a divine flow. What happens if God would come over and cut that cable? You would instantly annihilate, self-annihilate. You would evaporate instantly. You'd vaporize. Why? Because there's no divine flow, therefore the ability to maintain your existence, of course, is prevented, and therefore you immediately disappear. Now, therefore we understand this is the way fundamentally God creates the world. A divine flow, and that creates and sustains, and that is the concept of everybody's connected to God through this sort of cable. So this is the idea of creation. Now, in the beginning, as I said, everything is connected to God. In the beginning, Adam Harishan, the first man, 
He's also connected to God. And God said to him, listen, don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Satan, who is actually the snake, the Nochosh, is really the physical manifestation or really the representation of the, of the Satan. That's who the Nochosh was. And therefore, it was his job as the tempter, the Yetzirah, to present an argument to try to get him and his wife, Adam and Chava, to eat from the tree. And therefore, their purpose originally is to do what? is to ignore the advice of the Nochosh, the snake, fundamentally to ignore the advice of the Satan, the tempter, who was using the snake as his instrument. What did Adam do? Well, Adam didn't listen, right? Instead, he believed the argument of the Satan, or the Nochosh, right? He believed it. He bought the argument. He gave, it credibi he gave credibility to the Nochosh, the Satan, and he said, okay, I will eat from this tree. This is what Odom and, of course, Chava did. Fine. Now remember, originally the task of Odom was to reject or ignore the advice of the Sultan. Since Odom now listened to the advice of the Sultan, he gave him what's called credibility. Therefore, God came over to Odom and he said the following, and this conversation is mystically or it's understood as an illusion in the Torah itself. He said, look, until now, your job was to ignore the advice of the Satan, but you didn't. Therefore, you now have a second job. Your second job, or your new job, is to destroy the Satan, to annihilate him, to eradicate him, to demolish the Satan. It's no longer sufficient for you, as an Odom, to do what? To, dis to ignore his advice. You now must destroy evil. That's right. You've got to get rid of it. This is what Odom has to do. So God walked over to Adam and he said the following, Until now, your job was to ignore the advice of the Satan. However, since you listened to him, since you gave him credibility, you, you must now destroy the Satan. That, mean man, that means that man must contend with evil. And it is not sufficient to ignore it. He must annihilate evil in itself, which is a whole different kind of task. Now, the question is, how can Adam do this? How does a man do this? To fight an angel? as awesome as a Satan? And the answer is a very fascinating idea, which is a very critical piece of information. What God did is he walked over to the Satan, so to speak. Now remember, everything in creation is connected to God, and there's a divine flow that makes it be and sustains the existence, correct? Now, even the Satan is what's called hardwired to God. He also has a pipe or cable, right, that connects him to God, and through that cable, the Satan can exist. So what God does is he walks over to the Satan, takes the cable, and he cuts it. <clears throat> now, before the Satan disappears, <clears throat> he takes the cable, <clears throat> and he connects it to the cable of Adam, man. So now there's a cable that comes down from heaven, and it splits. One cable splits. One side goes into Adam, the first man, and the other side <clears throat> goes into the Satan himself. Interesting. <clears throat> One cable for both. Now, it is important to know that there is only enough divine flow that will allow only one side to exist. Only one side. Interesting. Only one side can exist. There isn't enough flow energy, whatever you want to call it, divine energy and so on, for two beings to exist. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> so this is the concept now. This is a new uh, uh, structure where man is now wedded for his ability to exist to the Satan himself. 
Now, what determines which way the, ax, the, the, um, the flow goes? To man or to the sultan? The answer is the acts of man. If a person does mitzvahs, he does uh, commandments, right? He observes the commandments and so on, mitzvahs, then the flow goes to him. As a result of that, he survives, right? And not only that, he survives and he flourishes. Means he makes a good living, he's healthy. Things are going fabulous for him. Not only that, but he's interested in spirituality, in ruchnius. He wants to learn. He wants to know more about God. He goes to lectures and so on. Great. While the flow is going to the man, what happens to the sultan? Because remember, because of the acts of man, it's going to the man, the Adam, and it's going away from the sultan. The sultan begins to die. That's right. He gets weaker. And as a result of that, his power is diminished. And all of a sudden, he, before he knows it, he's walking around on crutches. Right? Now, if all, if, now, who's the one who took the place of Adam? The Jewish people. Without going into why and how, they are the ones who took the place of Adam Rishon, the first man. Now, if all the Jews do all the mitzvahs, then the Sultan and his entire empire dies. That's what happens. Now, what happens if it's the reverse? What happens if man, instead, he doesn't do mitzvahs, instead he sins, right? So what happens then is the flow goes to who? It goes to the Sultan, not to man. Okay, and as a result of that, what happens? Since the flow is going to the sultan, he grows strong, incredibly powerful. <clears throat> In fact, the sultan is the only being other than man that can grow, that can change. Because he's getting more divine flow, he grows mighty. <clears throat> he's the only angel that can change. All angels cannot change. They are fixed at where they were created. The sultan can grow. That concept is called Tigberis Hurrah, the growth of evil. And man does it by sinning. What happens to the person? Well, that person grows weaker. <clears throat> and it's not only that he grows weaker, but he becomes more material, becomes greedy, he's into power. He loses his desire for spirituality and so on. He's into materialism and money and fame and so on and so forth. And ultimately, he deteriorates even further. If all the Jews sin, what happens is Satan goes unbelievably mighty and the Jews, of course, seriously suffer as a result of this. And of course, ultimately speaking, it would seem that if they all sin, then God forbid the Jewish people will become extinct. However, this is the relationship then between the Satan and who? And the Jews formerly of man. If we see that the Satan is called unique, the Satan must nourish from man. There is no other way he can survive. Until now he could survive by his own cable. But after the sin of man, he now is connected for his survival to man. That's a very important idea. It's called Yeniko. He has to be Yoinik. He has to nourish from the flow or the divine flow of man or the Jewish nation itself. And this is a very important idea. Now, what do we see? That the relationship between the Sultan and the Jewish people is what's called an inverse relationship. It's called a seesaw. When the Jews are up, the Sultan is down, because the Jews are getting the flow and the Sultan's getting nothing. If the Jews are down because they're sinning, then they're getting very little and the Sultan is getting a lot, they're never equal. They relate to each other in a re what's called a reciprocal way. They can never be equal. One is up, the other is down. One is down, the other is up. This we see clearly is the relationship between the Sultan and the Jews. It's called a reciprocal relationship, an inverse relationship, or a seesaw. Okay? This is then what happened. But there's something also which is very important to know. 
Let me ask something. If two people vie for the same food, and there's only one, enough to keep one surviving, what is the relationship between the two? And the answer is combat, survival. Each one must fight each other to the death. It's no longer a friendship relationship or whatever. It is survival that counts. It is combat. Therefore, we see a very important idea that the reason why the Satan <clears throat> wants you to sin isn't because he has an agency to go and make you sin from God. No, he's got to make you sin in order to do what? In order to survive. The issue is survival. It is no more just listening to the will of God. Aha, but the problem is this. If a person sins, if a Jew sins, can the Satan walk over and take his divine flow? No. Because the Jew must be tried in front of a trial. Because maybe he's not guilty. So even if a person sins, the Satan can't get his divine flow. <clears throat> the Jew must be tried in heaven. But wait a minute. Do you remember I said that 90 to 95% of the reason why a Jew is judged is because of Russian horror. So we see a very important added dimension that the Satan not only must get you to sin that's not sufficient to survive he's got to get you to speak Lush and horror because that's the only way he can present a kitrut which is a prosecution and then if you're found guilty he can take your divine flow not only get you punished but he takes your divine flow that's a very important idea because the relationship between you and the Satan is combat therefore he wants to kill you literally because that's the only way he can exist now you know why it's so hard to stop speaking Russian horror. Because a Sutton needs it to survive. In fact, as soon as he hears you drop a name, instantly the Sutton is right next to you because he's waiting for you to condemn the guy as soon as you drop the name. He needs that. In any case, this then is very important that you must sin and speak Russian horror. In other words, get judged. That's when he can take his flow. A very important idea. Of course, the reverse is also true. If you don't speak Lashon Hara, you, dead, you don't get judged. The Sutton cannot take any divine flow, even if you sinned, let alone if you didn't sin. So therefore, not speaking Lashon Hara itself can almost kill him, which is very interesting. But in any case, this then is a very important idea. The whole concept of the relationship between man and the Sutton. What is the consequence of this relationship? I will show you something remarkable. That this concept of Yenika, where the Sutton can only nourish from a person, from a Jew, if he sins and speaks Lashonara, is the major factor in the progression of history. Let's take a look. 2,500 years ago, the base Hamikdash was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Now, what does it mean that the temple was destroyed? Does it mean that uh, a house was destroyed? No. Clearly what it means is that the divine presence left. That's what it means. God left. It's called Siluk Shrina. The God left. Now the question we have to ask is, where did he go? Where does God go when he leaves? It's an interesting question. Does he go home? And the answer is no. He doesn't go home. What it means is a very profound idea. What it means that he leaves is the following. Is that the Satan walks over to God and says the following. Listen, I and they, we're in this reciprocal relationship. If they don't want you, I want you. If they don't want to nourish off the Divine Presence, I want to nourish off the Divine Presence. <clears throat> the Shekhinah itself, I want to nourish off. Now that's very interesting. The question is, what does that mean? Why would the Sutton want to nourish off the Divine Presence? What does he want to do? Get religious? Put on a talisman film? 
Now, obviously he's got a different ideas in his mind. But the truth is what he wants to do is very important. What the Sutton does, and God, by the way, since when the, ba- the first temple was destroyed, the Besamigdash, that's exactly what happened. God said, okay, I will allow you to nourish off me rather than the Jews. Because that's the concept, measure for measure. You don't want me, he takes me. You see, you sin, he gets the nourishment, and whatever we get, he gets. So if we're eating tuna fish, then the sutta gets tuna fish. But if we're nourishing off the divine presence, we lose it, he gets it. The question is, what does he do with it? And the answer is a very important idea. We, what he does is that he takes what we have. The Jews at that time had an unbelievable gift, and that is they were able to access an understanding of the divine presence. And nature, the knowledge of the nature of God, how? Through prophecy. <clears throat> Since we lost it, <clears throat> then the Sutton wants to take the knowledge of God and he wants to distort it and give it to the Goyim. That's what he wants to do. What's his strategy? Because remember, he can take from the divine presence, but what that means is he takes the knowledge of God, gives it to mankind, gives it to the Goyim. What's that going to provide him? Because then the Goyim will be closer to the truth. You see, and therefore hopefully they will be able to influence Jews to come over to his side. What does this mean? Where do we see this in history? I will tell you, very interesting idea. Western civilization is based on Roman civilization. Roman civilization is based on Greek civilization. That's what it based, the whole modern era really started with the Greeks, with philosophy. When did Greek civilization start? Do you know that it started within the 100 year period? of the time that we lost the Beis Amikdash, the first temple. Take a look. <clears throat> Pythagoras, Parmenides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These are the beginnings of what? <clears throat> of modern civilization. But this occurred, they, these people lived at the same time about as the destruction of the first temple, which is an actual incredible idea. Not only in the West did this happen, but in the East. Confucius the founder of Confucianism, the religion of China. Okay, how many people are into Confucius? 600 million people? He lived at that time of the destruction of the temple, approximately. Not only him, but Buddha, Buddhism, the religion of India and China, is about 600 million Buddhists. He also lived at the time of the destruction of the first temple. Not only Buddha, Buddha, but Lao Tse, the founder of Taoism, Also, the religions of the East. Isn't it incredible that the religions of the East and the ideology of the West should all be founded at the same time? Not only that, Rome became a republic in 525 BCE. Also, Rome, which was destined to rule the world and destroy the Second Temple, also became started then. How do we understand the fact that the major ideologies and the major religion and the major world power is founded at just around the same time as the temple was destroyed. And what the answer is, you know. Because what they have is what we had. That's really what they have. They have the Chochmah of the Jews, but it's switched over to the Sutton. This is the concept that the Sutton can take knowledge of God and give it to mankind as religions or phenomenal amount of ideas. In fact, there is a, posip, <coughs> there is a verse in Echo that alludes to this. It says in Echo, Soreho Umalkeho Bagoyim, that her kings and her princes are in the hands of the Goyim. <coughs> Ain't Torah, there is no more Torah. <coughs> and also her prophets, 
the prophets of Israel, they don't see any vision. What is this referring to? <clears throat> you should know. <clears throat> when the Satan is able to remove, to take uh, uh, the, the, the flow of the divine presence, what he does is he takes away two things from Israel. And that's the concept of Oiz and Tferis. The concept of Oiz is might, and the concept of Tferis is beauty, wisdom. So he took them both. Her princes and her kings are in the hands of the Goyim, the Gentiles. That is Oiz. That's the might. That's the dominion. <clears throat> right? Ain't Torah. There is no Torah. The wisdom of Torah is gone. Where did it go? To the west. <clears throat> Nor do they find any more prophecies or visions. That means the ability to access the divine presence through what? Through meditation, which is fundamentally the way a prophet accesses this, <clears throat> was given over to the other side. It's incredible. That's why they were able to get it, because the Jews lost it through their sins in Lush and horror. The Satan got it, but he got the Shekhinah. And therefore, all the major religions and ideologies of the West, including the dominion of the West, occurred right at that time of the first temple. Isn't that amazing? The second temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago. Now, what happened? We know the second temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago. What does that mean? What that means as follows, <clears throat> is that God left, right? Because when the temple is destroyed, God leaves, correct? Now what does that mean if God leaves? Obviously we know. It means that the Satan is able to take from the nourishment that the Divine Presence itself provides. <clears throat> so now that we know the rule, right, the hidden, the, the uh, mystical information of the rule, is that if we lose the Divine Presence, the Satan gets it, <clears throat> and what emerges? A religion, correct? Because that's what we lose, right? We lose our ability to understand God in an incredible way, and it is the non-Jews that are able to understand God, which translates itself into a major religion. What major religion emerged at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple? And the answer, of course, is Christianity. Now, let me tell you something interesting about Christianity. <clears throat> Christianity, in many ways, is a bizarre religion. Why? Because all religions, paganism, Hinduism, or whatever was going on around that time, and so on, they have nothing to do with Judaism. They're not based on Judaism. They're religion in and of themselves. Christianity, however, is not that case. I don't know if you ever realize it. Christianity is called a Moshe Kapoya of Judaism. What that means, that was Yiddish, by the way. <laughs> I realize. In any case, what that means is Christianity is Judaism on its head. That's right. It's an inverted Judaism. What really is, is a theft, a usurpation of Judaism. In fact, without Judaism, Christianity cannot exist. Because they, ex they believe in the, in the Torah itself, in the Bible, but they say that what? One, that God switched us for them, therefore they call themselves the house of Israel, right? So they said that we are not Israel, they are Israel. Uh, the second thing they said is what? Is that we don't have the Torah, they have the Torah, the New Testament. The third thing they said is what? <clears throat> is that we don't have the Mashiach, they have the Mashiach. Take a look, even the Pope wears a yarmulke. <laughs> what do we see? What it is, is, is what's called a grand larceny of Judaism. Uh, that's really what Christianity is. Without Judaism, there is no Christianity. Therefore, we see an amazing thing. Uh, this is what emerged. But wait a minute, why did it emerge? Because of Lush and Horror. In fact, it's interesting that the Gemara says uh, that the, the, uh, the temple was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam. 
<clears throat> baseless hatred and so on. Now, what does that mean? <clears throat> what that means is what? What does baseless hatred always lead to? Lushin horror, slander. Because when you hate somebody, you generally slander that person. <clears throat> and therefore, we see <clears throat> that the destruction of the temple fundamentally occurred because of Lushin horror. So we now begin to understand the emergence of Christianity. It's amazing when you think about it, where it comes from. It comes from our loss, they gained it. Now, if that's the case, we can begin to see something amazing. Could you imagine <clears throat> the persecutions for the last 2,000 years? The pogroms, the inquisitions, the crusades, the expulsions, right? The Holocaust, all of this is fundamentally because of slander, the sins of Jews and the Lush and horror, which not only exposes our sins, but gives our divine flow to the Sutton, and he is able to do what? To survive, grow, and actually give it to Goyim, so they should destroy the Jews. That's really what's happening. Now, let us take a look at the last thousand years, which is fascinating, and you will understand many phenomena that is occurring as a result of what is happening in terms of the Jews speaking Lush and horror. <clears throat> it says in the Zohar that I will send the Mashiach, God says I will, excuse me, it says in the uh, Novi, it says in the Prophets, that God says I will send the Mashiach, Be'ito Achishena. Be'ito Achishena means in its time I will hasten it. That's what it says, which means God says I will hasten the come of the Mashiach. It says in the, in the Novi, in the Prophet. Fine. Now the Zohar makes a comment on this. The Zohar said that the word Be'ito can be divided into two words, be ace, hey, in the time of five. So the Zoya says a very interesting idea, uh, that what, what Bitachishenu means that in the time of five I will hasten it, that means that the messianic light will begin to descend in the 5,000th year, which is the English year 1240. This is what the Zoya says, because of that posuk, verse, in the time of five. In other words, in the 5,000th year, which is the English year 1240, which is a long time ago, the messianic light will begin to descend. What that means is man will now begin to understand some aspect of the messianic light itself. Now, we must understand, first of all, what is the messianic light that will begin to descend? And the answer is that the fundamental idea of the messianic light is that the Mashiach reveals the internal structure of creation. Yes, he reveals what's called total reality, the internal structure, that all physical phenomena are rooted or based in what? In spiritual worlds, and that all the spiritual worlds emanate from God. <clears throat> it's the concept of chokhmah pnimius, which means internal wisdom. That's what the Mashiach reveals, but he reveals it in a way which is absolutely incredible. <clears throat> so therefore we understand what the messianic light is which begins to descend. Now, why the year 5000? Why the year 1240? And the answer again is very interesting. <clears throat> it says in the, uh, it says in the Gemara that that the world will exist for 6000 years. That's it. The world as we know it, this world will end in the English year 2240 which is 240 years from now. That is the year uh, 6000, the English year uh, 2240, uh, which is the year 6000, uh, and that's when the world will end. What significance does this have for us? Well, first of all, what's very important is that if you have bonds that will mature after that date, get rid of them. You must sell them. They are worthless. What is more significant to us is why is this so? 
Why does the world last 6,000 years? And the answer to that is this, is because God created the world in six days, and the seventh day is Shabbos, he rested. Therefore, the world will last 6,000 years, one day for a 1,000 years, because it says in Tehillim, one day in your eyes is a 1,000 years to us. Therefore, six days of creation translates to 6,000 years. The seventh day is Shabbos, therefore the 7,000th year is the world will end, because Shabbos, God ceases and the world ends. Uh, so this is the concept of the idea of 6,000 years, six days, and that why, that's why it ends at the 6,000th year, because six days of creation will have passed. And as a result of that, the Mashiach, uh, the uh, world will end. Now, let's understand something. Now, once we understand this, we can begin to understand why the Messianic light begins to descend in the year 1240, or the English year, uh, the Hebrew year 5000, or the English year 1240. Because think of it, <clears throat> 5,000 years is equivalent to five days of creation. 5,000, five days. That's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, right? Thursday night is the beginning of the 6,000th year, which is the end of 5,000. What is the beginning of the 6,000th year, or the sixth day, is Erev Shabbos? Exactly. What do we do on Erev Shabbos? We begin to prepare for Shabbos. Therefore, the Messianic light begins to descend on Erev Shabbos, which is equivalent on the creation calendar to uh, 5,000, which is the English year 1240. This is what happens. Now, <clears throat> did this happen? Did the Messianic light actually begin to descend at that year? And the answer is yes. The Zohar was discovered right around the year 1240, shortly thereafter. The Bahir, these are all Kabbalistic texts, was discovered. And the Kabbalistic texts reveal the internal structure of creation. These were discovered at that time. <clears throat> Not only that, and then it began to, that knowledge began to grow in terms of the esoteric knowledge of Judaism, in terms of Nachmanides, the Ramban, into who the Ari, Reb Chaim Vital, and so on, and began to spread. This information, <coughs> which is, reveals the internal structure, this mystical information, actually is the messianic light or the beginnings of it. And that actually started around the year approximately 1240. Now, <coughs> we know a formula <coughs> That if we sin and we speak Lush and Hara, what happens? The Satan is able to take what? He's able to take our divine flow, right? So wait a minute. If the Messianic light is descending in the year around 5000, which is 1240, and we're losing it, he is getting it. But wait a minute. What is the Messianic light in the hands of the Satan? What is that? <clears throat> we know what the divine presence which is lost is in the hands of the Satan. Major religion emerges. But what happens when the messianic light is in the hands of the Satan? What happens as a result? What does it look like, <clears throat> the messianic light in the hands of the Satan? And the answer is a very important idea. Do you know what it is, the messianic light in the hands of the Satan? It is science. That's what it is. Now, I will explain. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that science, of course, is devil worship. Of course not. But what is science? <clears throat> science is the ability of man to perceive the internal structure of the physical world. The same concept of his ability to see the internal structure, right? If you're into physics, then you deal with subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, quarks. If you're into medicine, right, then you deal with what? With pathogens, viruses, and bacteria, right? And so on. If you're a microbiologist and so molecular biologists, you are into DNA. Science is nothing more than the study of the internal structures of the physical world. Depending on which science you are, you're always looking at its internal structure. But that's messianic to be able to do that. 
The only thing is they use it with physical universe because they don't believe beyond that. And now, of what use is this to the Satan? It's really this use. Science, of course, in itself is mere wisdom. But it's like a knife. In the hands of a murderer, it can kill. In the hands of a surgeon, it can cure. What the Satan wants is he wants to take science, give it to the Goyim, and then as a result of that, create atheism. Do you know that the world was never atheistic until the advent of science? The world always believed in a god. They always believed in a religion, whether it be paganism or Hinduism, whatever it is, it doesn't make a difference. But they always believed in the concept of a supreme being. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> with the advent of science, then that offers, according to them, some alternative explanation or framework, right, of the world. Therefore, they chuck God and the whole religion. Atheism is really a phenomenon that begins with the advent of science. That's the strategy. He wants to use this messianic light, <clears throat> right, and get going, right, in order to become atheistic, and they in turn will influence Jews, so therefore they will sin, Satan can then access their divine flow. See, that's his strategy. Now, uh, did this in fact happen? Did science begin in the year 1240? And the answer is yes. Remarkably so. Who is the father of science? Who is the one who discovered and began the scientific method, which is the beginning of all science? Who is the one who broke away from Aristotle? His name was Roger Bacon. Yes, he's the one that began the scientific method. That is the beginning of science. In fact, he's called the father of science. <clears throat> Fine. And it began to grow by leaps and bounds. From Roger Bacon into Francis Bacon, and so on, all the science began to grow as a result. So take a look. The flow is going both ways. The messianic flow is going to the Jews, so they're progressing, and it is going to the non-Jews, so they're progressing in science, until the year 1740. The year 1740, right, is the English year, or is, is the English year 1740 is the Jewish year, the creation calendar year of 5,500 Right? Which is equivalent to 6 o'clock in the morning Friday. Friday morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. Because every 500 years is 12 hours. Right? And so therefore, 500 years is 12 hours. Thursday night, 6 a.m. 6 p.m. becomes uh, Friday morning, 6 a.m. But that's the beginning of what? Of dawn. It is the last day of creation. Uh, therefore, a decision has to be made around 1740, which way is this divine flow of the messianic light going to go? And which way did it go? It went to the Goyim, not the Jews. Where do we see this? Because right before 1740, <clears throat> the father of modern science lived. Who was one of the greatest scientists who ever lived? Sir Isaac Newton. He is the one who began the true revolution of modern science, with the calculus and the laws of motion, laws of gravitation, and so on. Uh, the man was absolutely phenomenal in science. In any case, he actually began that revolution in science at, in the, in, uh, 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 shortly before 1740. What happened to the Jews? I'll tell you something. And you'll understand the very important historical event. Instead of getting the Messiah, what we got is what's called the, uh, the Chemelniki Massacre. The Chemelniki Massacre destroyed, those were the uh, Cossacks, that destroyed, in 1648, one-third of European Jewry. In fact, next to the Holocaust, it is the greatest tragedy ever to occur to the Jews. And that occurred in 1648, right before. And not only that, because we lost the Messianic light, because remember, that's exactly what the trade-off is between us and the Sultan. Instead of getting the real Mashiach, we got the greatest 
false messiah who ever lived, who is Shapsai Tzvi. Where did Shapsai Tzvi able to do his thing? You think all of a sudden a guy comes up and is able to fool so many Jews? Of course not. Because the decree, there's a divine decree that you don't get this messianic light, they get it. But automatically what happens is that an individual that wants to deceive Jews gets enormous power from who? From the Sutton who is being unique, who is nourishing off that incredible divine flow of messianic light. Therefore we get the greatest false messiah who ever lived. And that's really what happened right around that time. Fine. What's happening? All of a sudden, <clears throat> they're getting it and they're growing by leaps and bounds. Science. Until you get to the English year 1990, which is 5,750, which is equivalent to on the creation clock or calendar, Chatzois, midday, noon. That's right, noon, Friday. What happens after Friday noon? First of all, it says in the Novi, in the Prophets, Li'es Erev or at the time of evening, there will be light. What that means is, it, and evening starts after noon because the sun begins to set. The sun reaches the meridian at noon, and that's when it crosses the meridian, and it begins to set. Therefore, the messianic light begins to intensify with unbelievable magnitude. But who's getting it? They are. Therefore, incredible things have been happening in the world of science, industry, and technology. First of all, nine out of every ten scientists who ever live, live today. Because most of science has been developed today. Not only that, there wasn't much of a difference between a person who lived in 1840, right? And somebody 1840 and 1840 BCE. There's not much of a difference except maybe the styles of clothing. But you compare a guy who lived in 1840 and a guy who lived in the year 2000, right, which is the millennium, you could never recognize what's going on. It's unbelievable what is going on. What a difference, a mere 160 years, the difference is just astronomical between the two. Again, because of the messianic light coming down. Not only that, do you have any ideas, idea of how much knowledge is coming down to mankind. Journals are where all the frontier of knowledge is. Journals. Do you know how many journal articles are published daily? I will tell you. 7,500 journal articles are published every single day around the world. With that kind of explosion of information, the sum total of human, of human knowledge doubles every five and a half years. Do you have any idea what that means? That is incredible. That, and that's exactly what's going on. Listen, entire industries rise and fall in one year because they've been outmoded by a new industry. Walk into an electronics store, you know? Walk in one year and then walk in the next. Half the stuff on the shelves, you don't even know what it is. And you don't even know how to work it. Just look at the revolution of the computer. It's only 20 years old. And the old computer is a dinosaur compared to the, what happens today. Why are they grown by such leaps and bounds? And the answer is because that is the messianic light that we had uh, that is going to them. What is happening to the Jews? Take a look. There are 40 million Jews in the world. 93% of the Jews are gone. They are either assimilated, unaffiliated, or intermarried. There are very few people compared to what's happening in the, in the Jewish world. How many scholars, Torah scholars do we have? We don't realize that because we live in the Jewish community. But just step outside of this community and you'll see the chubim, 
the destruction in America, South America, Europe, even in Israel, <clears throat> most people are not religious. In any case, this is what's happening to the Jews. Why? Because of the sins and the Lashon Hara. Think about this. If you speak Lashon Hara, <clears throat> now you understand the full weight of the sin. If you speak Lashon Hara, you will be immediately judged. If you are judged and you are found guilty, you will be punished. If you are found guilty, then the Satan will walk over and draw the energy that you have. He will take that energy for himself. And then he will grow in might. He will give incredible amount of different things to the non-Jews. And they will destroy the Jews. That's exactly what will happen. But if you don't speak Lashon Hara, what happens? And, and of course, and the Mashiach, right, cannot come. What happens if you do not speak Lashon Hara? Then listen, you will hardly ever be judged, right? You will hardly ever be judged, therefore you'll really be punished. Minimization of what? Of problems, if you recall. Not only that, you'll also live long, right? The Satan cannot take from your divine energy your divine flow, correct? Harm cannot come from the Goyim, the Gentiles, to the Jewish nation in the terms of persecution. Not only that, not only that, but the messianic light will be restored to the Jewish people. Because we get it back. Because that's where it belongs. And we merely have to take it from him. That's all. In other words, we merely have to stop giving it to him. If he doesn't get it, we automatically get it back. Take a look. We begin to realize an awesome idea. That Lashon Hara, slander, is the greatest devastating force known to the Jews. Either on an individual basis or on a national basis. This is the concept of Lashon Hara. And now that you understand this, you understand also a very important idea. We can now go back to the whole concept of the Chavetz Chaim. If you remember the story, how is he able to give this person a seat next to him in the future world if that person does not listen or speak Lashon Hara? And you will now understand, and I will illustrate it through an example. Imagine there was a king and he was walking by the lake. And on the far end of the lake, there was his wife, the queen, and his children, right? The prince, princesses, and so on. And they were boating. All of a sudden, a wave comes by, and it knocks the boat over. And in front of his eyes, in front of the king's eyes, his wife and his kids are drowning. Because let's say the, the waters are very rough. <clears throat> and he doesn't know what to do. In front of his eyes, his family is dying. And there's nothing he can do. All of a sudden, he sees one of his officers at the other end of the lake. And he screams out to that officer, save my family, because his family is dying. And all of a sudden the officer hears, he looks, sees the family, and he jumps in, and he rights the boat, and he saves the family of the king. Let me ask you something. What will this king reward this officer? Even if he gave him a dukedom, if you made him a knight, it wouldn't be sufficient to reward this man. Why? Because it's not that he only obeyed the command of the king. He saved the family of the king. Correct? Okay. When you don't speak Lush and horror, what do you do? Not only the fact that you are not judged, you are not punished, but also the Satan cannot grow and he cannot destroy the Jews. What do you do? You save the family of God, which are the Jewish people. What is the reward that God will give you for saving his family? I will tell you a seat next to the Chofetz Chaim in the future world.
That's why. That's what the Chofetz Chaim meant. That the reward of not speaking slander is so awesome because it saves the Jewish people from the clutches of an individual, a being, a Satan that wants to destroy them. And the reward that is fit is a level of, of Olam Haba, of future world, uh, that is next to the Chofetz Chaim in the future world. Could you imagine? Now let me tell you something. Listen, the Mashiach is going to come someday. We know that. What do you think is going to happen? I'll tell you. Everybody's going to line up. Everybody. Because everybody wants the Mashiach. He finally came. And the Jews who are, of course, going to be in the front lines, right? They're going to say to the Mashiach, listen, we've been waiting for you for 4,000 years. The world has been waiting for you <clears throat> for 6,000 years. What finally brought you? What did it? So the Mashiach is going to do what? He's going to open up his jacket and he's going to pull out an envelope and out of that envelope he's going to take a piece of paper out. And on that piece of paper is a list of all those Jews who did not speak Lashon Hara. Because they're the ones <clears throat> that reversed the flow. They're the ones that brought back the Messianic light to the Jewish people and therefore the Mashiach comes. Imagine what this is. Therefore, if I tell you it's not worth to speak Lashonara, it's not only on a personal or private or individual level. <clears throat> it is the greatest devastating force known to, to the Jewish people. <clears throat> Subsequently, <clears throat> the greatest reward you can ever earn is because of Lashonara, not speaking Lashonara. In fact, the Chofetz Chaim says a very interesting concept that people who do not speak Lashonara have a place in the future world that nobody comprehends. Even the Tzaddikim don't comprehend people who are, their, their place, their heichel, their chamber, <clears throat> even, <clears throat> even the righteous Sadiqim cannot comprehend a place where people who do not speak Lashon Hara dwell. That's how lofty and that's how great. And we understand exactly why. But there's something else I want to show you. <clears throat> this then is what's called a hashkofa, the underlying internal reason <clears throat> of what the greatness of Shmira Salashan is. Not to speak Lashon Hara. But remember one thing. <clears throat> you must learn the laws of Lashon Hara. Because if you don't know the laws, invariably you will speak Lashon Hara. And once you learn the laws of Lashon Hara, Lashen, that, those laws won't prevent you from speaking. On the contrary, you will finally be able to speak correctly <clears throat> and without jeopardizing <clears throat> yourself in return. But there's something else that you should know. What is that? <clears throat> Take a look. There are 100 blasts of a shefer that we blow on Rosh Hashanah. 100 blasts. I think we all do it. In any case, what are these blasts or koilis for? Well, the Rabbi Shechaim Lutzato says the following. The first 30 koilis or first 30 blasts of the shefer on Rosh Hashanah is to atone for the sin of idolatry on the Jewish people. The second 30, uh, the second 30 blasts is to atone for the sin of adultery incest. And the third, uh, the, th the next 30, which makes 90, is to atone for the sin of, uh, of bloodshed. So that leaves over what? 10. Because the first three are the most serious sins. That leaves over 10, right? Uh, so we got 610 sins left, right? So you figure, well, whatever's going to be that 10, it's got to be the greatest sin of all time, comparable to these three. And of course, what are the 10 blasts? The 10 last koilois blasts of the shayf on Rosh Hashanah is to atone for Lashon Hara. Did you imagine that it's up there in lights? 
with the three serious sins that if one is asked to transgress, he has to give up his life. That's the first idea. Second idea, what is the holiest day of the year, basically, besides Shabbos? Yom Kippur. What is the, that's the holiest day, right? The holiest time of the year. Who is the holiest man on that day? The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, right? Where is the holiest place in existence? The Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. In fact, it was so holy that nothing can go into that room except this Kohen Gadol only once in Yom Kippur, uh, once a year on Yom Kippur. Even an angel could not go through that room. Therefore, the holiest man on the holiest day in the holiest place what did he do there? You think, well, whatever he did, it's got to be big stuff. Yes? And I will tell you what he did there. He burnt incense. What is incense? Keteris. It is a kapora, an atonement for Lashon Hara. Isn't that absolutely incredible? That this is a central focus of the whole Avedah, the whole Yom Kippur worship, the service, is the focus to get the Jews to be forgiven for the sin of Lashon Hara. Then there's one more idea. Moshe Rabbeinu, if you recall, uh, he's standing in front of God by the snare, by the bush, and he says to God, God says to him, take my people out. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, I can't take them out. You know why? And the Kleyokos says this, one of the commentaries in the Torah. I can't take them out because if you remember, what's the reason why they're in Egypt is because they speak Lashon Hara, if you remember the previous idea. That's why they're in uh, Egypt is because they speak <coughs> Lashon Hara, so I can't take them out. So God says, no, they don't speak Lashon Hara anymore. And the Medrash says three times that in Egypt, in the last year before they went out, the Jews stopped speaking Lashon Hara, which is interesting. So God says to Moshe, they don't speak Lashon Hara anymore. So he showed him a sign. Take your hand, put it underneath your coat, take it out, and it became leprous. <clears throat> and we know that one of the punishments for Lashon Hara is Saras, which is not really leprosy, but it's Saras. So God said, put it back in, take it out, it's cured. And that was a sign to Moshe Rabbeinu that the Jews stopped speaking Lashon Hara. Now imagine, <clears throat> who is the greatest being? God, the commander-in-chief, yes? Who is he speaking to? The greatest Jew who ever lived, Moshe Rabbeinu. And what are they speaking about is what? Is the greatest event in Jewish history, which is the Exodus. And what are they talking about? How to get the Jews out. And what does it focus on? Lashon Hara. Can you imagine what's going on? So what do we see? That Lashon Hara is an unbelievable sin and we realize what it does to the Jewish nation. Therefore, I encourage everybody, ask yourself, is it worth it? It's not, because look at what occurs to you. If you speak Lashon Hara, you will be judged and then you will be punished, right? And then as a result of that, he will get your divine flow, he will grow in strength and allow the going to destroy us and we'll stop the Mashiach from coming. Imagine. But if we don't speak, it's reverse. So therefore, what we have to do is, everybody has to strengthen themselves.